0: Welcome to Founders Focus, a podcast made for founders by founders. I'm Scott Case, CEO and co-founder of Upside, and I created Founders Focus to help share free resources and actionable advice. Together we're building a community for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders to come together to tackle today's challenges. This podcast is powered by my awesome team at Upside. Please visit foundersfocus.com to join the live video sessions or to catch up on past topics joined by Andrew Hogue, who is the founder and CEO of Team Pay. And our theme for today when Andrew and I spoke was that uh, he and I are of similar vintage and have been through some shit. And we thought we would talk about scar tissue and, uh, and, and in particular Andrew would talk a little bit about his experiences um, and we're looking for you guys to answer any question ask any questions that you have along the way. So with that I'm going to turn it over to Andrew who will uh, introduce himself, talk a little bit about your background and then we'll dive in.
1: That's great. Thanks, Scott. Um, good to know that we can swear. Otherwise, it'd be a pretty boring interview. So I'm glad you broke that uh, damn early. Um, yeah. So, you know, as Scott mentioned, um, been around the block a little bit. Uh, started my first company in 2008, about four months before Lehman Brothers crashed. Uh, there was also a bunch of other things happening in the market at that time, uh, particularly related to private equity, which was kind of an interesting time to start a business and, you know, really hunkered down, survived through that. Bootstrapped my way into a couple different ideas, but eventually sold that company in 2012. Uh, so, you know, there's definitely, as Scott said, scars uh, that I felt coming out of that, and some lessons learned that I've been applying through the current crisis. And you know, really looking forward just to having the conversation.
0: Awesome. Well, I, I want to I want you to tell we're going to have you tell a little bit about TeamPay, but before we do that. Let's actually start back in 2008. You're starting a company. What did the company do? What was was the core idea? What was the market? And then how did the thing fall apart in a way that made you have to rethink it?
1: Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting story, especially given that you're hosting this, right? So our initial kind of foray into this was around travel. Um, and we were spoke, specifically focused on lever, leisure travel, but with groups. So we started a product. We launched a product. It was initially called Black Drum. We were going through a couple of different names, but really hadn't settled on a name. And what's interesting about travel is, you know, when you start to think about investment and fundraising, only about half of venture capitalists want to invest in travel at all. And then out of the ones that do, trying to do that, you know, in the middle of a recession is is pretty difficult. So, really, through a series of twists and turns, we kind of stayed within this local and social connectivity space. Um, You know, we were one of the first companies on Facebook platform. We won an award from Facebook Fund back in the day. Uh, So we really were focused on kind of the social interaction with people and we started around travel and then moved into local events and then we moved into like local experiences and restaurants, um, which was actually the business Urban Tag that we sold a few years later. So really just kind of, you know, became a cockroach and tried to survive through nuclear winter and everything else that happened through that time. And there were a number of kind of different ideas all around the same nexus around local and social, but different attempts to kind of bringing that to market until the last one finally Finally, got a little bit of momentum.
0: All right, so so now we're going to fast forward to TeamPay. You 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 started the company three or four years ago. Why don't you tell us what TeamPay is, how you got where you are, and kind of where, where you're at right now?
1: Yeah, we started the company at the end of 2016, um, and you know it's been it's been an interesting journey. Uh, you know, really, I, you know as I was starting to think about what I wanted to do next, uh, started looking at a lot of different markets, and I think what's interesting about where TeamPay is. And, you know, gotta, you got to rewind a few years ago. Uh, there just wasn't a lot of uh, really kind of innovation around the finance stack for companies. And so, you know, as an outsider to the finance stack, I was able to bring kind of my pattern recognition from running engineering teams and running marketing teams and other things that I'd done in my career and look at kind of how finance interacted with their employees and how finance runs the business and realize there was a really, really big opportunity there to go in and transform uh, the finance team and really transform how companies are run And so, you know, we started the company around, uh, actually it was fall of 2016, launched the product in the beginning of 2017, you know, have raised kind of successive rounds of venture capital. Our most recent round was a series A last year, uh, and then just continue to grow the team and expand into this this vision uh, that it is. And really, you know, what TeamPay does in a nutshell, and it's more relevant now than ever, right, is we help companies get control and visibility over money. So what money is going out the door? Who's it going to? Is it going to the right places? Are we spending within policy? And then also giving teams the visibility into how that money is being spent so that they actually have the ability to make better decisions and be more agile kind of throughout throughout the uh, the month and throughout running the business.
0: So is it primarily oriented towards the expense side or is it a combination of understanding what the revenue is? Where, where does it sit in that finance stack?
1: Yeah. So on the PL, we focus today on the expense side of it, right? But that, you know, primarily, you know, 92%, 93% of what we cover is operating expenses. Uh, so when you think about expense, it's on the ledger, right? Not kind of like expenses, like reimbursements. Um, but it's, it's a lot of operating expenses, recurring software spend, Um, on-demand transportation, fractional office space, all these kind of things uh, that are really just eating away at at an organization and the finance team and all this stuff is being bought, bottoms up. So we think of it really as kind of looking at the spend side of the equation, which, you know, to be honest, as everybody's learned in the last few months is the only thing that you have direct control over in your business is what you're spending. You don't have direct control of the revenue. God, I wish I did. Uh, But you have direct control over your expenses and costs. And it's the piece that's least controllable in today's, in today's finance world. And we're changing that.
0: That's awesome. So you brought up the last few months. So tell me, tell me on, in, on February 1st, what were you, what were you trying to accomplish in 2020? And now that it's, let's call it June 1st, what's, what's changed in that, in that four month period between what are your hopes, dreams, plans, momentum were then, and where you are, where you've been over the last few months. How, how has, how has the business changed?
1: Yeah, it's been, you know, honestly, Scott, it's been quite a roller coaster. Uh, You know, we came into kind of Q1 with a full head of steam. Our goal was to triple the business or better this year, Um, planning to raise like a Series B round around the summer. uh, And then COVID hit. And there was just a lot of uncertainty around COVID. And there was a lot of uncertainty around what would happen to the economy, shelter in place. Uh, I'm sure you remember this as well, but literally like every day there was new stimulus, there was new shutdowns the market was moving. It was so dynamic, really starting around mid March all the way through, even until early April. Um, and so at that point, you know, we kind of looked at the business, said, all right, like number one imperative is to survive. Right. Because if you're not here, you can't, you don't get to fight another day. So that's the number one imperative to survive. And, you know, really focused a plan on getting us through that survival. And what's been interesting, you know, for us is like, you know, a lot of my investors are like, assume you're not going to get any revenue the rest of the year. Well, how does that change your plan? Where do you invest? Like what does that mean in terms of your burn rate? Do you go down to like five people to keep the lights on or something like that? Right. So there were a lot of those really wild card questions there that we were struggling with. And, you know, after looking into it and I, I was involved in a lot of the deals that were still in flight throughout this, uh, you know, we kind of started to form an opinion that this downturn actually could potentially be beneficial for team pay. And after a couple months that started to prove out. So we went through this situation where we're like, hey, everything's great and we're going to triple the business and then went down to this nadir of like, oh my God, we're never going to earn another dollar of revenue this year. Like, how do we stay through it? And then now we're kind of coming out the other side. You know, it's that classic kind of hype cycle and trough that you see. And we're probably in like the plateau of reality at this point, I guess I would think about it in that sense. So, you know, we've got a strong forward outlook. We're probably not going to triple the business this year. Um, but we're definitely growing. And like when I start to look at that on a relative basis, you know, different industries have been impacted in different ways and we seem to be a beneficiary of that. So we're now starting to move the company back onto offense, but it's been a wild swing over the last three or four months. I can tell you that.
0: So talk a little bit about that offense piece from a, you go from survive to sort of start to move into the thrive category. Are there are there some things that you learned from the last time around that now you're applying into that? And, and what are those one or two, three things that you're saying? Yeah. As, as we're now emerging out of this, these are the things we're focused on as a business.
1: Yeah. I think you hit on, you hit on something there that's really important to me, right. Which is focus. And, you know, I think scarcity actually breeds innovation and I think scarcity breeds strength, right. You know, I'm, I love, drinking like really good wine and collecting wine and like the more stressed the vines are oftentimes the better the wine and I feel like companies can kind of work out the same way and I think a lot of times what kills companies is lack of focus or indigestion right just trying to do too much and they do all of it poorly and so you know when when kind of survival mode hit the first thing is all right how do we get the burn rate cut down? How do we make sure that we have enough cash to survive doing everything we can, right? And the reality is during that time, when you're going through that type of an environment, um, the quick wins disappear really fast, right? There's only so many places you can cut, you know, a quarter million or half a million dollars out of your budget. And it's pretty much like people rent and maybe a few other, you know, service providers or vendors. And, you know, those are the things that are actually muscle and bone for the business, right, particularly around the headcount side. And so as opposed to going in and cutting, you know, too many heads and then ended up with, you know, losing an arm, right, to extend the analogy, right, like we ended up turning over every, every, every sofa cushion and finding, you know, 10, 25K savings that added up to 250K, which allowed me to keep more people on the team. And really, that requires an insane amount of focus to determine what's important to keep, what's critical to your success. And then as you start to come out of that into that thrive category, you don't want to get into a situation where you get back out over your skis and you're trying to do too much. So, you know, I think it really comes down to rigorously prioritizing, here's the things that I need to do. And if I connect the dots in this way, it opens up bigger opportunities down the road. But understanding that chain of causation and understanding that prioritization and then focusing on those in sequence, I think is the most important thing you can do when you start to come out of a crisis like this.
0: Absolutely. I'm going to tee off of two things you said, and then I've got a question around expenses. So one thing that I think a lot about is constraints. So what are the constraints in your business? And sometimes it's money, sometimes it's time, sometimes the market, whatever it is. But identifying those constraints and embracing them as... Now you can get creative, right? That that yeah. idea that, okay, we only have this amount of money or this many people or the market shrunk in some way. So constraints are powerful, but you have to you have to name them so that you can know what they are and then yeah. you can innovate around them. And the other is focus. I think there's a lot of F words in, uh, in startup land, but focus is the one that I come back to again and again and again. And uh, and just being as tightly and, and, and clear as you can be about what it is you're trying to accomplish um, is really, really
1: important Um, yeah keying off the keying off the constraints comment right i think like my background is on the product side of it right and i think about that a lot when i'm deciding on product strategy and i don't think running a business at the end of the day you're still trying to create a strategy and execute on it and so i think there's a lot of overlap and you know on the product strategy side i think constraints are your friend right i think of it almost as like physics right the smaller the pipe, the faster the liquid flows through it. And a huge pipe, you gotta have a lot more liquid to flow through it, right? But like, it's harder to get that much momentum moving and inertia. So I think anytime you start to shrink the pipe, you actually end up with more velocity and you can always increase it. Um, But you gotta start with that, you know, you gotta start with that nozzle and, and work outwards from the aperture there. So I think that constraints piece is something that I practice on the product side, but also applies to just how you think about capitalizing your business, um, how you think about the resources and the employees you put in your business, it forces people to make hard decisions. And I think if you don't have constraints, you can get lazy and avoid making hard decisions. And I think ultimately it's the hard decisions that help companies be successful, not the easy ones.
0: I totally agree. I also think that coming back to the expense side uh, and be, I'm curious to see how team pay did this inside team pay and then how the product can support this for companies that are your customers um, you know, we got whacked right away. We're in the travel space. We knew this was going to drop precipitously. We're down 95%. We're up, we're, we're up a hundred percent since we were down 95%, which means we're only down 90%. Um, so, but the, the, uh, the, the thing about it is that, um, we went and did a quick inventory of every SaaS product and you talked about bottom up and I, I'm going to get the number wrong. It was like 150 different services. And Mm -hmm. I think we're spending like a quarter of a million dollars a month. And you've got everything at the high end, like AWS, which we cut in half. But, you know, that was a big one. But then you had this long tail of things. It just sort of, it seemed endless, right? There's, you know, one designer has one license for one tool that they like to use. And it's like, how do we end up spending $50 a month on that? Um, So how... I found myself thinking we're operating the business today having cut, I think, 65% of our cost. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, what happened all last year? Like, why didn't we do that last year? Like, that would have been nice <laughs> to have all that money back. Like, what, yeah. what was going on there? So either how did you do that inside Team Pay or, or how does Team Pay, the product itself, help with keeping an eye on that stuff so that it doesn't get out of control?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we cut our burn by 40% percent. I was doing the math in my head because I know the from too, but we cut our burn by 40%, right? Monthly burn. And we did that while only, while only laying off around 10%, less than 10% of our workforce, right? So we had to make some cuts on the go-to-market side because obviously we weren't clear what the scaling would look like there. Um, but overall, I'm really proud of how the team pulled together on that. And, you know, really it was, I think of it as two factors, right? Like one is, yes, taking a critical assessment of, do I need this? There were some projects that we had slated right around growing and scaling. Scaling, we pushed some of those projects out, uh, which was important. TeamPay as a product also allows you to really go in and view the data around what's being spent. So, for example, our VP of marketing, Nicole, can easily go in and look at all of the marketing spend, right? Based on the department, she can sort by vendors. She can see what are the top vendors. She can look at what are the bottom vendors right, on the marketing spend. Um, she can look at it by her employees, she can look at it by the GL code, so she can see which is acquisition marketing, which is software subscriptions. So that ability is slice and dice, and you start to pivot and dance around that data a little bit, and then you start to see what's recurring, what's annual, right, what's monthly, what's single use, and you can start to really get a feel for the shape of the expenditures and then go in there and start to start to cut some of these out. And then some of it was also just simple renegotiation, right? I think we reached, out to, we reached out to almost every vendor in the top 10 or 20 and said, hey, do you want to keep us? Because we're trying to figure out if this makes sense, but we need help. And almost all the vendors were amenable to that. It was great, right? And even that netted us you know, six figures back um, just to be able to go out and renegotiate with some of those vendors. So it's a combination of identifying where the hotspots are potentially peeling some of that back, but you need the data to be able to find that those hotspots. And then even for the hotspots, you want to keep using, you know, kind of renegotiation and working with the vendors to offer better terms or whatever it is to give you a little bit of relief on that. And that, you know, that's really how we got there.
0: Awesome. That's super helpful. So I'm going to shift gears going back to that thrive piece. So you, you, you went through the economic collapse. You've sort of talked a little bit about that. Talk about how you optimize around the recovery. Like, what does the what does having been through a recovery before that those early years, let's say 2011, 2012, you were heading towards. Obviously, sold the company, but what was in that window, and how did you? Was there anything about that was different about your strategy when the world's starting to recover from this? And kind of as we shift into that over the next few months.
1: Yeah. Um, it's a good question because I feel like even right now, and you know, I know this is something that we want to talk about, like it's not clear that we're in a recovery yet right now. Right. And rewinding to 2011 and 2012, it was just one of those things where like the lagging indicator is you can feel it. And that lagging indicator is, you know, you start to see more fundings open up. You start to see just more kind of general demand customers change their focus on what's, you know, and things start to come back. I think that's a little bit of the lagging indicator. Um, the leading indicators are almost different every single time. And I think that's a little bit of the challenge, a little bit of the Anna Karenina principle, which is, you know, every marriage fails for its own unique reason. And I think, you know, similarly on the leading indicators, every every recovery, you know, I was also in the dot .com, right? So I, this is actually kind of the third time I've been through this and every recovery looks different. Uh, but, you know, I think the, you know, the macro factors that we've seen now are, you know, just more capital and quantitative easing being pushed into the comp- into the economy, right? I think a lot of the unemployment is actually, st- is, is actually temporary, right? It's, it's companies shifting the liability, of their employees over to the government. But if things come back or when they come back, those employees will come back. There's jobs there. They're just not open right now because they shifted some of the liability onto the government as the payout. Um, so I think that's also like really positive about where we are, you know, and I guess the one piece of advice I would have there as an operator is, um, you know, trust, but verify. And what I mean by that is you may start to see some of these leading indicators and entrepreneurs are paid very well, right. In the form of equity and everything else to be optimistic. So you may start to see some of these leading indicators and, you know, start to, go back and lean into things and get back on offense. And I think, you know, that's the piece where I probably am a little more conservative because you don't want a whipsaw between these two extremes. And so figuring out, it goes back to the focus question of figuring out like, okay, you know, in our operating plan, what's the next adjacent thing that has the most impact, right? We're not looking five things down the road. We're looking one thing down the road, right? Out of the 10 things that we cut, what's the first thing we would bring back? I've got that list. And I look at that list with my finance team. We look at that list with our exec team every day. Like, what's the next thing we can do that is actually going to move the needle? And you start slowly turning the knob open. Um, and as you as you move through that, you need to make sure that it doesn't change your runway or burn rate or affect your future too much as you gain more confidence. Um, but, you know, I would probably say that I'm turning the knob slower than I'm seeing the feedback, just to always make sure that if things, you know, go back down or there's a double dip or any of these kinds of things. It's, it's not such a dramatic swing.
0: Yeah. This, the, the regulating on kind of the throttle, like how much do you Mm. press in and, and where do you, you know, how much do you trust the information because we have such short windows. And then the other big challenge is is that (laughs) everything that was true last year isn't true anymore. So whatever data, whatever data we had in 2019, we threw it all out. Like, that none of our machine learning models work, all this stuff. And the data we're collecting over the last three months is also a shit show. So it's, it kind of comes back in some ways to what entrepreneurs are also paid for, which is to get, make decisions with very small amounts of information right. and sort of weigh the probabilities. So, so I'm curious, um, you know, how do you do that? So let's, you're sitting here, let's say you have a weekly cycle where you're looking at where the business is. What are the, Kind of what are your decision making strategies when you've got a small amount of information you need to make a decision about where the company's going to go, let's say somebody's come with a proposal to invest more here or hire a person or do that what's the what process do you use to make those decisions?
1: Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of kind of different mental models, and you know there's a couple that we would apply in this case. I think one of my favorites and this is Amazon and Bezos has talked about this, you know, pretty publicly as well, but it's the concept of a one-way door versus a two-way door. And so decisions that are effectively two-way doors, right? A good example of that could be like, you know, a single spend on a single thing, right? So it's a one-time payment to kind of like run a test, right? That's a one-way door because if it fails, right, effectively like you don't have to make that spend again, Um you know, that's that's a two-way door. You can go back. Sorry, I think I got them flipped around there. That's a two-way door. But the one-way doors are the ones where you walk through and you can't go back. And those are the ones you have to be really careful of. So what's also interesting is a lot of things that look irreversible, you can actually make reversible. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you're considering like hiring for a role and you're not quite sure three to six months from now, what that role is gonna look like and there's some risk around it, like especially in today's environment, maybe you contract for three months. And so you take what looks like, you know, almost an irreversible decision around like bringing on another headcount and all the encumbrance of like having to lay someone off later and turn it into something that's more of a fixed timeframe and then ratchet up from there. And this applies to product, this applies to financing, this applies to a lot of things. And so that ability to turn a one-way door into a two-way door is actually really valuable and you really want to try to make the decisions as reversible and low impact as possible. um, So that there, you know, even if there's some cost, the downstream ramifications of that are fairly low. That's awesome.
0: The, the, the idea of, of re re looking at the decision differently, seeing if it's reversible or not, and then just figuring out how to, how to de-risk it or, or scope it properly so that you really uh, quantify the actual, the actual dollar risk, which is often how we think about things as a business. Yep. Um, so you can have a cost against it. Uh, I, I've mentioned this before, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of a book called Thinking in Bets by a, a poker player named Annie Duke. and She applies it to the business world. And if you haven't, if you haven't read it, it's, it's, a, it's a great way of putting some probabilities against it. And the combination of probability plus a cost gives you an expected outcome that you can say, all right, I'm willing to make that bet. And to your point, is it reversible or not for an application of additional money? Absolutely. Um, Yep. So we've gotten some, we've gotten a few questions on the chat. I'm going to pick out one that's about your early going at team Bay and I'm going to reframe it a little bit, but, but I think you'll get the take, how long did it take you to get product market fit? So in those Hmm. first months, what, what were some of, did you have any, did you have any minor pivots or significant pivots that, that you could share?
1: That's a great story, right? So, you know, team pay is effectively something that's, that's new in this world, right? Um, we probably index closer to procurement software, but in procurement software has been around for you know decades. Uh, but most procurement software is built for procurement managers, which is a very specific job. And TeamPay is really procurement software for the masses, right, it's like, you know, it's like as revolutionary as cloud storage was, right, to like the old file servers. Um, so, you know, that newness carries a lot of risk and i built a product that i personally got excited about right and you know to be honest like we we fucked up when we launched the product so the point of product market fit is the product and the market and a lot of people focus on the product but you also got to change the market and that could mean educating the market or just choosing a different market and so getting those two things aligned took a lot of time so you know, probably like, you know, this is super concrete. Like when we launched the very first iteration of TeamPay, we launched it and I was like, all right, I got a few friends that are running companies. Like they're super excited. They want to support me. They really want to try it. They think it's really cool and sexy. Uh, and so I gave it to a bunch of my friends and other like seed funded companies, 10, 15, 20 people. I knew the founders. I knew the CEOs. Like here's this thing, go. Crickets for literally four months, we had crickets. And I was sitting there, I was like, oh my God, am I just weird? Like, am I the only crazy person who thinks this is a good idea? Like, I just built a team and I raised money and like, holy shit, like, this is a disaster. Um, And so it was really like hard. And I think I was fortunate in two regards at this point. Um, And this is probably something that I would, you know, if I could go back and advise my younger self, one was, you know, just kind of like keep calm and carry on, right? Conviction is king. You got to listen to what the market's saying, but you got to understand what to change, right? It could have been really easy for us to go back and say, the product doesn't work. Let's do a new product. We actually didn't do that. We said, we think the product works, but we think we have the wrong market. And that was a little bit of luck and a little bit of circumstance. And the reality is we had raised a little money. So we had some funding. So we had time to figure it out. And I just had this confidence from my prior experience that we would figure it out. So coming out of that, where we had like no engagement, no usage, and a bunch of people who said they were excited, they were like, "Nah, nah, it's not that great. It's kind of a toy, like whatever. Um, We moved into a different segment. So we went to a larger company. I remember I was terrified, like... Our customers now have 2,000 to 3,000 employees typically. Um, and at the time, like we went to a company with 100 people. We're like, oh my God, 100 people are going to use this. Are we ready? And we went to a larger company with 100 people and we charged them for it. We just like, you can't use it unless you pay. And all of a sudden engagement took off, right? And we were selling to the wrong person. So we never sell to an owner, operator, founder, CEO anymore. We always sell to finance. Uh, if you don't have, I believe in enterprise software, which is what we are, if you don't have skin in the game, There's no incentive to deploy, right? So really making this be about their business process. Uh, And those two factors, right? Changing who the buyer was, changing the target and charging for it is what drove all of the engagement and all of that. But none of that, the product was still exactly the same but we changed the market piece to get those two things to align. Um, And that's something that's been really formative and educational for us ever since. We just know going down into that segment requires different packaging and a different go-to-market strategy, which we're no longer pursuing anymore. And we focused on where we know we can win. Um, And it was something that I should have known kind of coming into it, but the market literally spoke to us and said, "Uh uh-uh. You gotta go over here and that really transformed the trajectory at that point. So we definitely did not get it right.
0: That's a, it, It's a good point to ask the question about who is your customer, right? You thought it was one customer, turns out it was a different one, same problem, but different tier. And there's, you even highlighted one other thing, which is who actually inside the company is the decision yeah. maker that wants this. Yeah. And it's, uh, that's something I see a lot of enterprise software folks sort of miss out on is, and yeah. oftentimes there's, there might be two or three people, right? There's the person yeah. who's going to use it. There's the person who's going to make the decision to buy it. And there's the, the yeah. person who wants to know we have the thing, but doesn't give a shit. And about someone
1: anything. else is going to pay for it. Yeah, there's no. Exactly. exactly.
0: Yeah. Right. So there's understanding who those people are is really important. That's true. Even when you're creating strategic partnerships, who's making the decision to do this, who's going to be implementing it, what are they like yeah. and what they not like
1: and the incentives of each of those people. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What's the alignment around them and how are they going to, and, and your other point that's really important is pricing is significantly more important than a lot of people give credit to it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you, you, you could sell a product that, that, you know, many of us might say, well, that sounds overpriced, but the fact that it's priced the way that it is a hundred thousand dollars a year is the thing that gets people to buy it because they make a whole bunch of assumptions about what it is as to why that you must be charging $100,000 for the thing versus if you charge $99 a month, they go, well, that can't be that good, (laughs) right? So understanding the pricing strategy of who your market is and who you're selling to is really important. Yeah, Um,
1: that was a lesson we learned along the way, right? The perceived value of pricing is really strong in customers' minds Um, and my initial projections, we just blew them out of the water in terms of how we would price and everything and we've been able, fortunate to be able to grow pricing 20% quarter over quarter. And it's hard because we've got a bunch of early customers now that are like grandfathered in and like we're very loyal to those customers. Um, but, you know, the perceived value part of this is really important. And when you think about it, it actually makes sense. I think founders historically underprice their product. Um, but team pay is protecting the entire capital base of a company. Right. And so what? how valuable is that insurance? Right. How valuable is protecting every single dollar that you spend knowing that it's being spent in the right place and making sure it's being spent effectively, that's worth a lot of dilution and that's worth a lot of capital. And so, you know, there's just a lot of value that you can start to carve out of that as we started to learn how customers were using this and where this fit within their stack.
0: All right. We're going to, we have about six minutes left. I've gotten some questions from, from our audience. If you have other ones, please post them. So we're going to do sort of a speed round ish here. So, um, if you were to wait when you're making a decision, how much of it is data that's in front of you, your previous experiences, or, um, or sort of your gut instinct. So wait, those three factors for me.
1: Oh, man. Um, I mean, it depends on how much I have of each because they all got to compensate for each other. It's one pie chart, right? So there's some decisions where I have a lot of experience. And it's just like, this is the way, because I've seen the 10 ways this doesn't work. There's some decisions where I have a lot of information and no experience. And then obviously the hardest ones are where I don't have experience and I don't have information, which the reality is most of them, right? Especially as you're growing a startup and, you know, I'm at a stage now, which is pretty much new territory for me. Right. And so then you fall back on your gut. But I think the other thing that I've been very, very, aggressive about doing is pulling people around me that I can bounce decisions off of. So if I don't have the expertise, there is always 100% someone that is a text message away that does. And so that's the other piece that I've learned is really leveraging not just my investors, but advisors and contacts and my network. Like, hey, ran across the situation. How would you think about it? People love talking about themselves and giving advice. Sorry, this is a speed round. That was a long answer.
0: No, that's no, good. It's it's actually the right one. I think so. Next one up is um, you decided to go up market. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how did you figure out who the buyer was? What experimentation did you run? How did how did you how did you have that? Oh, it's the it's the CFO or the controller, or whoever it is. How did you determine that?
1: Yeah, the customers told us. Right. It just comes back to listening. Right. I think building a company and entering a new market is an exercise in listening. And if you listen, there's a pot of gold. And so the customers told us, right? We reach out to a CFO and they'd be like, oh, you need to talk to my controller. They handle this, right? Um, we'd reach out to an fp person like, oh, well, actually, this is kind of on the accounting side. Go talk to accounting. Um, and so the customers told us. And, you know, really, I think the thing that I get scared as we start to scale is deafening or kind of losing that feedback, losing kind of that auditory feedback from the customers, and so we work really hard internally to make sure that that feedback is visible to everyone in the company, right? Nicole can see what's happening in customer service and support um, on, from our marketing side to our support side and things like that. So I think that customer feedback and they're going to lead you to the answers if you listen. Yeah, so are you still talking to customers? Absolutely, as much as I can. It's my favorite thing.
0: Yeah, I, it's one of the things that I, um, I really encourage entrepreneurs and founders to do throughout the life cycle of their business is to carve out the time to spend time with it whether it's your customer the buyer is the one who's giving you money the users that if they're not happy you know undermine it just just be baking that into who you are and sometimes depending on the market you're in you just run into them in the grocery store and you can have a conversation in your case you've got to actually get to that finance person and, and yep. be able to make it happen but just being able to talk to those customers in the business travel, I run into business travelers all the time, and I interview them. Right? They don't know it, but that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Right? How did you think about this? Why did you? What, you and now it's like, did you travel before, or, and are you still going to travel again? And how might that look? Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So here's a here's sort of the bookshelf question, which no, who knows what everybody consumes content in way. Is there one or two or three go-to sources that you come back to again, either? Some, something you're reading right now or a blog that you come to or a podcast that you like that you yeah, use man. as an input to your thinking that you say, you know what, subscribe to this, engage in this, just one or two that, you, that come to mind?
1: Well, in terms of things I go back to, right, I'm going to go back to the bookshelf, right? I think one of them is um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And that's a great book in this time because you're dealing with a lot of hard things. So that's one that's dog-eared and highlighted and you know all of that. Uh, I also recently had our management team read High Output Management by Andy Grove and that's a great book on just operational management and how to think about operations in a really good way Um, and right now I'm actually reading Sun Tzu like I skimmed it when I was younger and I'm rereading it and just thinking about you know there's interesting little nuggets and tidbits and fortune cookie wisdom in there and things like that right so you know i tend to have i tend to have a few different books that i kind of go back and refer to every once in a while or look things up and use as as resources and then there's blog posts and you know various writings that i've collected over time but those are probably the core kind of things that i like to on the philosophy side it's the alchemist and actually i think that applies a lot to building a startup as well if you've read the alchemist and thinking about hiding your treasure and finding it later and you know, the, basically the test and all these kinds of things that happen in the alchemist, it's actually a nice parable for building a company too.
0: That's awesome. All right. So in the last minute or so that we have, what's the one thing all these entrepreneurs should take away? If there's one thing they should go like get their head wrapped around, let's say this weekend to make their business and put their business in a better place, what would it be? Focus. Awesome. It's a good word to land on. (laughs) I like it. Well, listen, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Andrew, thank you for spending the time with us. It was a really good discussion. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Founders Focus. What did you think? You got any feedback for us? Got a topic that you'd like us to discuss or maybe a future co-host? We'd love to hear from you. Just hit me up on LinkedIn at T. Scott Case and join us at foundersfocus.com to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join us live every week at our Founders Focus sessions.